Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Tim Bouvery. Uh, Mr. Bouvery is a graduate of Oxford University where he read history at Christ Church. He writes frequently for The Spectator, The Observer, and The Daily, Daily Telegraph. And today we're speaking about his book, Appeasement. Chamberlain, Hitler, Churchill, and the Road to War. Welcome, Tim Bouvery. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. What is the thesis of your book? The thesis is not necessarily what I would say is original. Is that easement was a self-evidently failed policy. The policy was to try and avoid a Second World War, and as we obviously know, that uh, failed. But I suppose going a little bit deeper than that, it suggests that the critical failure of the appeasers during the 1930s was to misread and fundamentally misjudge the nature and intention of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. And it was from this serious misjudgment that all subsequent failures stemmed. What were the initial British and French reactions to the accession to power of Hitler in January 1933? Well, to begin with, the British in particular were fairly relaxed about the advent of Hitler because German chancellors, since the First World War, had lasted on average only one month. And the country was still in the grips of the Great Depression with a million of the workforce unemployed. So many in Britain uh, discounted. Hitler and thought that he would be a temporary aberration. They certainly didn't believe that him coming to power betokened a new European war. But the French were, I think, much more nervous about for the understandable reason of their, their proximity to Germany and the fact that even with large parts of German national territory having been uh, taken away from Germany at the end of the First World War and given to new nations such as Poland and having their colonies confiscated, the simple fact was that Germany had a population of some 68 million compared to France's 42 million. So they always feared that a that the Germans would be looking forward to a war of revenge and that this was a mighty power which was uh, had demographics as well as a serious industrial base on its side. How did Churchill react to Hitler's uh, coming to power? Well, Churchill was remarkably prescient. And he actually warned the British people of the danger of the Nazis and of Hitler before they came to power. Churchill's first warnings about the Nazis come from November 1932, and Hitler doesn't come to power until January 1933. And what Churchill was really able to do was to realize that what the Nazis were after was not mere equality of status, which was the Public line put out by Hitler once he came to power that they merely wanted to be treated as other great powers. They wanted to have a military same as Great Britain and France, the United States. They wanted to have rights to colonies. They wanted to readjust uh, the Treaty of Versailles and have restored to Germany uh, all of those uh, bits of their territory which had been confiscated following the Versailles Peace Conference. Uh, Churchill said, "This is nonsense." What? these people are after is a war of revenge. They are after expansion. And there is something much more insidious 
for this German character than even that which existed in days before the Great War uh, under the Kaiserreich, and that is this racialist survival of the fittest social Darwin mentality, which was being applied within Germany, but could also be applied without. That it had been written by Hitler constantly in Mein Kampf that a nation that ceases to struggle, ceases to fight for its very existence, will die, and that his program would be based on, therefore, massive territorial expansion. Who besides Churchill was clear-minded about the German threat in the early to mid-1930s, in terms of the UK, that is? Well, the ambassador to Berlin when Hitler comes to power is a man called Sir Horace Rumbold, and he really also managed to understand the nature of the Nazi regime and Adolf Hitler because he had read Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography and political treaties, which he had written in the 1920s when he'd been in prison. And Hitler is very explicit in Mein Kampf. He talks about the need to expand German territory in the East, in particular Russia, provide Lebensraum, living space for Germany's expanding population. And he talks about the need to annihilate France as necessary precursor to that battle. So Rumbold reads this book and sends a masterly 5,000-word dispatch to London, saying that this man and this regime mean great trouble and are a serious threat to European peace. He's ignored because the natural, logical conclusions which you would draw from it is that Britain and France needed to fight a war of prevention, a preemptive strike, as it were, before Hitler got too powerful. And such an action for various reasons, not least the incredible wave of capitalism swept both of those countries in the decades after the end of the Great War, meant that this was entirely politically unconscious. Uh, Baldwin, uh, the real power in the national government, how did he react to Hitler's coming to power and the subsequent call by Churchill, among others, for British rearmament? Well, Baldwin's a pretty laid-back figure, and his main interests are domestic politics and the economy, the social fabric of the country, rather than foreign affairs and defense requirements. He is extremely nervous about pledging the government to a massive rearmament program because he believes that the country is essentially and that if the Conservative Party, which overwhelmingly made up the national government, committed itself to a rearmament program, then that they would lose the 1935 or 1936 general election. And the reason he thinks that is because there are some famous by-elections, most uh, famously one which happens in London in uh, the borough of Fulham, where a conservative majority of nearly 15,000 is overturned by a Labour candidate standing on a platform of total disarmament and And this really frightens Baldwin, and he explicitly tells the Commons in 1936 that the reason he was unwilling to initiate large-scale British rearmament was because he was so certain that they would lose that election. How did Anthony Eden initially react to the Hitler regime 
particularly in the uh, case of his first uh, trip to Germany where he met Hitler, among other people. Eden was, it has to be said, charmed by Hitler when he first met him. He thought that he, he, the man even had a suspicion of humor. A gifted linguist who speaks both French and German. And it is totally fair to say that uh, Eden does not see the uh, devil beneath the pacifist exterior that Hitler puts on. He swiftly changes his mind. I think by the second time he meets Hitler in March 1935, he has decided that Hitler is very much in the Prussian militarist mold and that there is very little that can be hoped for in terms of a practical renegotiation of the existing treaties in Europe with such a government as Hitler has established. But when he first meets him, he doesn't really see the uh, great danger. And what was uh, Eden's reaction, um, and this is in March 1936, when he's now Foreign Secretary, to the German reoccupation of the Rhineland? Well, Eden famously asked his taxi driver what he thought about the reoccupation. The driver replied, well, I suppose Jerry can do what he likes in his own back garden. And this really sums it up, that as far as the British were concerned, there was nothing to be said against Germany really extending her sovereignty over her own territory. It wasn't as if she had invaded another country. It merely moved troops into the Rhineland. In retrospect, and as some contemporaries pointed out at the time, such as Harold, it was clear that this was a turning point and that this was perhaps the last opportunity of stopping Hitler short of all-out war. But Eden reflected the mass majority of opinion in Great Britain and indeed France, which said that we were simply not going to go to war over something which was widely regarded as an unjust hangover from the Versailles period. To what extent was the French reaction, not only in the case of the occupation of Royland, but subsequently a um, reaction due to British pressure? to use the contemporary imagery of the time, the British nanny, and how much was it, in fact, a genuine French reaction because of French fears of uh, another um, war? Well, I think the French, with the Rhineland, as indeed with almost everything else during this period, are enormously subservient to the Great Britain. They wouldn't quite use it that way, but in some ways they do. Almost every French prime minister says during this period, and there were a hell of a lot of them, uh, we're experiencing some political turmoil in this country at the moment, but that's nothing compared to the Third Republic of France, where ministries uh, changed about every four months. But what most of these prime ministers, whether left or right, had in common was that they all acknowledged that no single Frenchman would take one step towards war with Germany unless Great Britain was behind her, supporting her. And this gave, uh, in this sense, it ceded the diplomatic initiative entirely to the British. This is why I think the figure of Neville Chamberlain and the figure and the figures in the British government are so important. It wasn't just that they were responsible for British policy. This is, I think, the last time in history when 
the world was looking to Great Britain leadership with the United States in isolation and French uh, politics in turmoil. So I think the French enjoyed being able to blame the British for not taking action against the Germans. The French could have easily pushed the Germans out of the Rhineland on their own. They had a very large army and the Germans had only moved 22,000 troops into the Rhineland. It wouldn't have led to a major war, almost certainly, or if it had, it would be a war that the French could have easily won. But the French general staff are so defeated at this time and that uh, General Maurice Gamelin, the head of the French uh, general staff, massively inflates the number of soldiers which are meant to have crossed into the Rhineland. The reality is that 22,000 German troops crossed into the Rhineland, but Gamelin claims that it is in fact around 300,000. Um, and he's got to that figure by adding up all the members of the SA and the military police and auxiliary troops to the total of combat-ready soldiers. So I think it is a sense of pacifism, it is, it is defeatism, it is the financial precariousness of the French economy. The French could have, could have acted on their own, but didn't, and, and certainly liked, in retrospect, to blame the British for restraint. How important to your narrative was Neville Chamberlain's succession to the premiership in the spring of 1937? Neville Chamberlain becoming prime minister in May 1937 was a crucial turning point because the pace of the appeasement story changes, and it changes in two ways. It changes firstly because Chamberlain is determined to try and reach an agreement with Hitler and therefore starts making his own efforts and He's decided that British policy is no longer going to be reactive. We're not just going to wait for the next fascist coup to occur wherever it may occur. We're going to try and pin these dictators down to an agreement and go through a sort of shopping list with them as to their demands. But also because by this stage, German rearmament has reached a point at which Hitler and Mussolini are able to flex their muscles a bit more and start to demand and achieve those territorial uh, readjustments that they have so frequently within a year of less than a year of Chamberlain coming to power he is confronted with the uh, German occupation of Austria the Ashruss and then within another five months from then he is dealing with the Czech crisis uh, also known as the uh, Munich crisis. Can you describe the diplomatic efforts of Lord Halifax and Sir Neville Henderson in 1937 to conciliate Hitler, and why were they fatally flawed? Yes, so Lord Halifax was the number two in the British government. He was the most respected state in Britain. He would succeed Anthony Eason as Foreign Secretary in February 1938. And he is sent out by... Neville Chamberlain, essentially on the pretext of going to visit a German hunting exhibition in Berlin, to find out exactly what it is that Hitler wants. Chamberlain has this very business-like mindset, which says that if only we could get the Germans to put down what their demands are, run through it, and, and I'm sure we could reach an agreement. We don't want to have these vague terms of have-nots and win just searching for stasis. We want a very specific 
set of demands, which we can negotiate over and then draw a line under this. And Halifax's mission is really to, is twofold. It is to try and understand what it is that the Germans are after, but it is also to try and uh, build up goodwill. Both Chamberlain and Halifax are of the view that face-to-face negotiations and a willingness to show friendliness, comradeship between former adversaries will pay diplomatic dividends. And so Halifax make to the Germans are that if they calm down and promise not to start threatening the peace of Europe by annexing territory in Central and Eastern Europe, then the British will work with them to give them some sort of colonial restitution. A colony in Central Africa which could possibly be made up of part British, part Dutch, part Portuguese possessions in, in Africa. And this is not something that Hitler is in any way interested in. Uh, all he's interested in, as uh, Halifax notes, is Austria and Czechoslovakia. And crucially, what Halifax does at, at this meeting, which occurs in uh, Bechtesgaden, uh, Hitler's, at the Burghof, Hitler's mountain retreat overlooking Austria, Halifax tells Hitler that the British have no problem with him taking over Austria or with the Sudeten Deutsch, the Sudeten Germans in that western fringe of Czechoslovakia joining with the right, provided that this is occurs this occurs peacefully. And uh, Hitler readily interprets this as the uh, the British abstaining themselves from uh, setting any opposition to his plans. Now, Anthony Eden resigns in February 1938, and ostensibly for reasons of, of uh, differences with the prime minister over the policy vis-a-vis Italy. How do you uh, rate Eden's uh, anti-appeaser um, record? Well, when Eden resigned, uh, Lord Beaverbrook, who was a Canadian press baron, said that he had uh, banked a check which he could cash at any time. It was this. It was very fortunate he managed to get out then, because none of the blame for the subsequent uh, conduct of British foreign policy fell on him. But I, as I say in the book, uh, Eason, who was this incredibly good-looking, film star-esque politician, Anthony Eason looked too good to be true, and was he always opposed appeasing Mussolini? He really he, he was far more skeptical of. Um, Mussolini than he was of Hitler. He thought that Mussolini was the Antichrist, and it is over the appeasement of Italy and Mussolini that he and Neville Chamberlain fall out, and it is on this subject that Eason resigns. Exactly also uh, due to the fact that Chamberlain is continually cold-shouldering the United States, and in particular President Roosevelt's efforts to fall a summit to try and resolve uh, the tension that's threatening to indulge Europe. It should be said that I don't think the summit had the faintest chance of succeeding, but the British rejection of it was extremely stupid because it was the first attempt by the United States to involve itself in world affairs where peace and war were concerned since the First World War, and it would have been an important demonstration of support and a, a, a slight move away from isolationism. But Eden doesn't have a fundamental problem, at least in the first half of the 1930s, with easing Nazi Germany. And indeed, after the reoccupation of Rhineland, he says 
some two things which are inherently contradictory. He says what this proves is that Hitler will always break his word because Hitler had promised not to invade the Rhineland because he had promised to honor the Treaty of Locarno. So he says, so Eaton says, this proves that Hitler will break his word, but nevertheless, we should use this opportunity now that this tension has been removed, this grief that the Germans had. We should use this opportunity to reach a far ranging agreement with the Germans and just keep Now, obviously that, that's contradictory because he wasn't ever going to uh, keep his words, then there was little point in negotiating any agreement. You do not appear in the. I'm sorry, you do not appear in the book to um, uh, buy, as it were, the revisionist argument on the Munich uh, conference and agreement. Why is that? Well, the revisionist argument is essentially ex post facto. It is all arguments which were made after the fact, and. It really centers around the idea that Great Britain was simply not ready for war in 1938, and there's an awful lot to be said for that. The Spitfires, Hurricanes, and Raider, all of which made the difference between victory and defeat in the Battle of Britain of uh, the summer of 1940, are not ready by the time of the Munich Agreement, but are ready by certainly the spring of 1940 or uh, late 1939. But what this argument ignores is, firstly, that nobody made that argument. Chamberlain right. does not come back from Munich and say, gosh, that was a close shave. We have got to really uh, expedite rearmament because this is not going to be the last of Hitler's demands. Actually, he comes back and says, this is peace for hard time. And when cabinet ministers come to him and say, you were very lucky, we must never be put in this position again. I don't think this is going to be the end. You must increase British rearmament. Chamberlain refuses. Secondly, the so-called breathing space between Munich and the outbreak of war in September 1939 is enjoyed by the Germans as well, who use it to complete the West Wall, that series of fortifications later known as the Siegfried Line that separate France from Germany, seriously increase the capacity of the Luftwaffe, and also to continue to develop tanks as well as obviously acquiring from the Sudeten uh, land and from Czechoslovakia a huge number of uh, tanks and rifles that this was a highly industrialized munitions center. So uh, the argument about armaments, I don't think, holds any water. Where I think the revisionists are on stronger ground is in pointing out that a war in 1938 would have split British public opinion and it is highly likely that we would not at least initially have had the support of the English-speaking dominions, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa. But whether they would have come in later, I think is probably quite likely, but it was not as obvious a cause as on which to go to war in September 1938 was in September 1939, simply because by September 1939, Hitler had proven that he was for European dominance. The, the issue of whether or not to compel the Poles or the Czechs to make concessions to Germany was pretty much equal on a political morality scale. But the, the main reason for going to war over Poland is that the idea that Hitler had to be stopped because he had proven himself to be untrustworthy and enjoying a Napoleonic lust for conquest. How much could one take at face value uh, the uh, cl Soviet claims at the time and 
back subsequently that if it came to war in 1938 over the uh, Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, that uh, the Soviet Union would have intervened if uh, the French had done so. Well, this is, as you say, uh, in America, the million-dollar question. There are some very good reasons for distrust to Stalin, as Churchill and FDR later found out. But there were even greater reasons for distrusting Hitler, and this was a man whose word at least the British Prime Minister seemed prepared to accept. What do we know for certain? We know that the Soviets continually assured the Western powers that they would intervene, providing that the French intervened first. We know that Litvinov, the Soviet foreign minister's entire strategy since he had become foreign minister in the uh, early 30s was to reorient uh, Soviet foreign policy away from isolation. He said that he would support sanctions over Italy's invasion of Abyssinia. He says that he would support sanctions against Germany after the reoccupation of the Rhineland. And thereafter, in 1937 and 1938, he is forever trying to co-opt the British and the French into some form of anti-fascist alliance. But the British and the French won't. The French sort of do. They, they agree a, a defensive pact, at least with the Soviets, but the British uh, continue to hold them at arm's length for various reasons. They promise the Czechs that they will provide them with material. And during the Sudeten crisis, they undergo a partial mobilization. Some 300,000 men, men of the Red Army are mobilized. Uh, the great problems that they face uh, are that the Soviet Union did not share a land border with uh, Czechoslovakia at that time, and that there was therefore a significant problem for uh, way for the Soviet troops to, to get there. But as time moved on, the Romanians began to say that the Soviet Air Force would be able to cross its airspace, and merely having Soviet uh, material aid in the 1930s uh, during the uh, during any war which might have occurred resulting from the effects would have been uh, seriously beneficial to the Western powers. Would it be true to say that the British and the French uh, were in the spring of uh, 1939 diplomatically bounced into guaranteeing Poland and Romania? And if so, why? They're sort of bounced into it because there are these succession of scare stories that claim that the Germans were on the cusp of invading Romania, possibly got up by the Romanians themselves. And then there are scare stories suggesting that Hitler is about to bomb London. I think those stories are really emanating from the German opposition to the Nazis, which centered around the head of the German military intelligence, uh, Admiral Canaris, who is trying to persuade uh, the British that they have to take a strong stand and therefore try to frighten them into some action. The Polish guarantee comes about slightly by accident because initially the British are looking to have a complete anti-Nazi uh, expansion alliance, which would involve the Soviet Union at the same time. But the Poles say that they have no, no interest in being guaranteed by the Soviet Union for the very justifiable reason that they fear that the Soviets will um, use this as an opportunity to uh, interfere in Polish affairs and possibly annex their territory. They're, they're, they're stuck between the Scylla and Charybdis of uh, Nazi Germany and the USSR. So it, it is the pressure of events. And, and it would also be fair to say that 
the guarantee to Poland is conducted without any appreciation whatsoever or even thought as to what practical aid the Western powers could give Poland. It is a gesture strategy. It is purely uh, an idea of convincing Hitler that if he goes into Poland, then he will have to face the war with Britain and France. There's no serious effort made to trying to help Poland actually defend itself. And indeed, the British continually refuse thereafter to provide the Poles with a large loan on which they can build up their dilapidated uh, defences. Uh, do you agree with uh, those historians who uh, posit that regardless of the maladroit Anglo-French diplomacy in uh, the summer of 1939, that uh, Stalin would have come to an agreement with Hitler uh, over the division of Poland in, in any subsequent um, war, German war with Poland? I'm sorry, I missed the very beginning bit of the question. Would you do you um, uh, agree or disagree with those historians who posit that regardless of the maladroit Anglo-French diplomacy towards the Soviet Union in the summer of 1939, that uh, Stalin would have come to an agreement with Hitler regardless? It's certainly conceivable. There's Stalin is far less Western-centric than uh, Litvinov, who. By the spring of 1939, uh, he has dismissed from the foreign ministry, and he, he's a, a natural Machiavellian. But Soviet uh, propaganda ideology was inherently anti-Nazi. I mean, m- more anti-Nazi possibly than even anti-capitalist, and vice versa. So I think if the Soviet Union had really been convinced that the British and the French were not conniving at trying to have a war between the Nazis and the Soviets, which is something, in fact, in fairness to Stalin, uh, people like Baldwin did say, they did continually say, gosh, if only the, if there's going to be any fighting in Europe, I do hope it's the Bolsheviks and the Nazis doing it, and they can just, these two absolutely awful regimes can just uh, kill each other. So I think it, it's always possible, but uh, the British and the French certainly made it, made up Stalin's mind. And, um, uh, in terms of the uh, the summer of 1939, there's a lot of private diplomacy uh, around uh, the initiatives uh, or parent initiatives of uh, Hermann Goering. Why did London think that he was a moderate? They think he's a moderate because it's possible to have, or was possible to have, vaguely ordinary conversations with him. He didn't, unlike Hitler, fly off the handle and uh, have temper tantrums with uh, with his interlocutors. But also because in some respects, he was a model. He, in, in this foreign policy sphere, he was. He uh, vehemently opposed uh, war in September 1938. And it is him who really pushes the agenda for the Munich conference and encourages Hitler to step back and to allow negotiation to win out over fighting. And then he is definitely against a war with Britain and France in September 1939, particularly Great Britain. So it's not, he is not remotely moderate in his, uh, domestic ideology or his, uh, he's no, hardly less of a racist than any other Nazi, but he's, he's, he's not one of the hawks in among Hitler's, uh, cabinets. And frankly, people found him good company as well. There's, uh, extraordinary uh, account given by Lord Halifax after his November 1930 
seventh visit to Germany where he sees Goering and he describes him as a frankly, a frankly attractive character, a sort of large great landowner, he compares him to someone who could be seen looking after the game or the pheasants at Chatsworth, uh, which is the uh, seat of the Duke of Devonshire in uh, Britain. So he, all of those reasons, that's why I think people were prepared to put their trust in Goering, even though he frequently disappointed them. Why did the debate on the Norwegian uh, debacle in uh, 1940, May 1940, cause the collapse of uh, Chamberlain's premiership? It's because of the massive drop in support that Chamberlain had. The, the, the government enjoyed a majority of, um, I can't remember the exact number to the top of my head, but uh, almost 300, I think. And I know that it fell to a mere 81. Now, 81 is a huge majority, if you're looking at Britain now, where, we, where the government doesn't have a majority at all. And it would have been a fine majority for something to have happened in peacetime. But the idea is that you couldn't, a government could not survive that vote, which showed such a lack of confidence in it during war. The fact that nearly two, hundreds plus of the government's supporters had abstained or voted against on a crucial issue of peace and war. And I think also it is, uh, it's not just Norway, it's the fact that the phony war, as it was called in America, or the Boer War, as it was known over in Britain, has really grated on everyone's nerves. And it, it, it's just it's startlingly obvious that Chamberlain is not a war leader. And so it, it, the combination of this and the, and the incredibly dramatic speeches were made in that, uh, in the House of Commons during those days in May 1940. How objective and accurate was the Michael Foote et Ali Guilty Men book? It wasn't at all objective and not very accurate either, but it's wonderful satisfaction with really biting portraits of the leading members of the national government. It was also highly hypocritical because Foote, along with the, who was a later leader of the British Labour Party, and in common with the Labour Party of the 1930s, he refused to support rearmament. And actually, Guilty Men is not so much an indictment of the policy of appeasement, although that gets into it. It's really a book about rearmament. It starts off with Dunkirk, and it's a look at this army, which, in their words, was defeated even before it took the field. And it's an indictment of the British government that failed to prepare for this great war. And the hypocrisy in this is the fact that if the Labour Party had been in power during the 1930s, then Britain would have had absolutely no weapons with which to confront fascism in 1939 at all. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I would want them to take away a thorough understanding of the period and the dilemmas which were faced by contemporaries. And the natural lessons to learn from that are that peace is fragile and allies are not to be taken for granted. There is, was and is generally a majority of states in the world who would like to have a peaceful and prosperous coexistence, but they're continually being disrupted by the minority of states that don't wish this. And in order to try and prevent uh, international brigandage and aggression, it's necessary for allies to work together. And I think that if you, it, it's worrying that uh, on in in America, but also in Britain, people are, are 
people in Britain and in Europe, uh, traditional allies are turning on each other in very, with very tough rhetoric. International institutions, which are there and designed to keep peace and indeed have kept the peace of Europe since 1945, such as the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, NATO, or the European Union, or the United Nations, that these are being undermined by supposedly the leaders of the Western liberal democracies. I think that that is um, very worrying. I would like to thank you very much, Tim Bovary, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure.